Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast. This is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing these shows since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you for joining me on this journey. If you like this podcast, you should check out our sister shows, Pitch It, the FinTech Startups Podcast with Todd Anderson, and FinTech Coffee Break with Isabel Castro. Or you can listen to everything we produce by subscribing to the FinTech Nexus podcast channel. Before we get started, I want to talk about our flagship event, FinTech Nexus USA, happening in New York City on May 10th and 11th. The world of finance continues to change at a rapid pace, but we will be separating the wheat from the chaff, covering only the most important topics for you over two action-packed days. More than 10,000 one-on-one meetings will take place, and the biggest names in fintech will be on our keynote stage. You know you need to be there, so go ahead and register at fintechnexus.com and use the discount code PODCAST for 15% off. Today on the show, we are talking marketplace lending, specifically securitization of marketplace lending deals. I'm delighted to welcome Gunesh Kulaligil. He is the Structured Finance Co-Lead at Stout. They are an investment bank and advisory firm. I wanted to get Ganesh on the show. He's written a couple of articles for us at FinTech Nexus News, and which I will link to in the show notes. He has got a really good perspective, really follows the the deals very closely in the marketplace lending space. He's been doing this for quite a long time. And so we wanted to get him on the show to talk about the state of the industry today, the state of securitizations, how and why 2022 was a record year. We talk about the impact of increased interest rates. We talk about demand and supply. We give an explainer about how a securitization deal is structured. We talk about prepayments and uh, and much more. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Ganesh. Thank you for having me, Peter. All right. Let's kick it off by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. Tell us some of the highlights of your career to date. I've been in the structured finance business for about uh, 20 years or so. The definition of structured finance and what it is that we do uh, changed over those two decades. But I've generally been involved in lending, uh, securitization, in uh, securitization, uh, investing and trading, securitized products and specialty finance assets. I've actually started my career back at uh, Fannie Mae in early 2000s, as you know, the mortgage giant at, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, so learned uh, the ins and outs of the mortgage business and the structured finance business in general. I then moved to uh, Bear Stearns Asset Management uh, and in 2005. I was there until 2008, 2009, up until uh, the crisis. I, I've also had similar roles at Fortress, uh, all on the buy side, investing and risk analyzing in various other roles um, within structured finance. After that, I uh, after Fortress, I actually moved to the uh, south side. I uh, led the structured finance group at Hulahan Loki for about six or seven years. I launched my after that, I launched my own valuation advisory firm called Methodical in 2018, and Methodical was acquired by Stout in 2022. So we are now part of Stout, me and my partners, and and we're growing the uh, specialty structured finance business uh, in the bank. Okay, so then. 
What is your your core focus? Tell us what you are focused on at Stout today. I call it, you know, it's the structured finance business. But if you think about it, it's a bit of a misnomer because when you say structured finance, people will uh, mostly think about securitization, securitized products, mortgage-backed securities and asset-backed securities. We, of course, cover those products. But I think uh, by definition, structured finance is overlapping with specialty finance, uh, fintech lending type assets uh, quite often. So we cover those as well. And what I do is actually quite simple, two service offerings. The first service offering is valuation work. So every asset that we're going to discuss today, almost all, I should say, not every, is considered a level three asset from an accounting perspective, which means these are illiquid, esoteric, and hard to value assets. There are no trades you can refer to. So as you know, these are higher yielding assets for the most part. So when a hedge fund invests in it, a third party needs to do the valuation of these assets on a monthly or quarterly basis as investors go in and out of these funds, somebody needs to strike the nap. So that's part of what we do. We do this for securitized products, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities. We also do whole loan investors. Not every investor will be uh, investing in bonds or securitized products. There's a bunch of funds who invest in individual loan portfolios. There are also investments in servicing rights. There's many different ways to invest in in this asset class. And we do valuation work for all kinds of investors, including hedge funds, obviously. But that also includes, um, you know, some banks, some insurance companies and some trusts and what have you. So that's half of our business. The other half of our business, as you know, in general, specialty finance and structured finance is a pretty illiquid and I would say a pretty fragmented space from a participant's perspective. Given the fragmentation in the industry, we're actually doing some loan transaction advisory work. What that means is if we take uh, if we take one step back and look into the you know the financing toolbook of a specialty lender, there's securitization, there's warehouse lines, there's forward flow facilities from uh, alternative investors, right? But it is a very fragmented space, and there's a lot of room for uh, brokering some of these trades and and connecting specialty finance lenders with pockets of financing available for them, so they can uh, go ahead and originate more product. So that is the second uh, line of business. We have uh, that is a loan transaction advisory business. We cover secured, unsecured, and business loans. On the unsecured uh, consumer front, obviously marketplace lending, which is what we're going to focus on today. But we also cover uh, subprime, auto, POS lending, solar, buy now, pay later, those types of specialty finance assets, as well as residential and commercial, which we're not going to get into today. But these are really old. Um, higher yielding, higher risk assets that hedge funds mostly invest in. So we do the valuation work for them. And we also help the platforms when they're looking for financing to grow their origination or when they're looking to sell loan portfolios with a system with connecting with buyers. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So as you said, we are going to talk about marketplace lending. We're going to focus on that today. Maybe we could start off with just telling the listeners when you first started following marketplace lending, what got you interested in it? I was on vacation in Mexico, believe it or not. I got a, <laughs> I was at Hulahead at the time and I got a call from, from the office. And I think it was two, it was about a decade ago, I think 2013. This company called SoFi at the time wasn't, you know, it was basically just a couple of years old and they were looking for some valuation work. And that was uh, my initial introduction to marketplace lending was with SoFi portfolios. 
But if you think if you think about it, that was 2013, 2014, when this sector uh, really became, I don't want to say a mainstay, but became more in the spotlight. Prior to that, if you if you recall, a lot of the alternative investors were really trying to invest in distressed investments all the way from 2008, 2009 crisis. So from that perspective, this marketplace lending offering in early 2010s was a very refreshing offering, something new, something not distressed and something interesting. So that's when I uh, got into uh, valuing and also transacting in the space. Right. And actually from memory, I think I think SoFi did their first securitization in 2013, if I remember rightly, as a private deal, I, I think. And it was a big news in the space. I think you're right. I think you're right. That's when actually there was, you know, with those securitizations, there was a lot more institutional eyes looking at in, into this asset class, you know, investing in their residual uh, bonds or investing in seniors. So I think that that was kind of the coming of age for marketplace lending. And that was about a decade ago. Right, right. So then let's fast forward to today. You follow this industry pretty closely now. How would you describe the state of marketplace lending today? I think the word is transitory, really, <laughs> because our economy is is in a transitory stage anyway. Uh, but I mean transitory in a good way, uh, as it applies to marketplace lending. We've written a few articles for your uh, for mm-hmm. your publication, as you know. It's been, and I mentioned it there too, that marketplace lending has been called the canary in the coal mine for many years. That anytime there is any kind of distress in the economy or any kind of softening in consumer credit, the theory was the first shoe to drop is marketplace lending, i.e. unsecured consumer loans. That would be the first default. So, you know, and and then there was this theory that it was never a tested asset class. It was untested, right? right? So true or not, right? It is not the biggest asset class. If you think about it, I mean, we've looked at a bunch of securitizations uh, for the piece that we've written for you. And that was only about 60 billion. And that covered most major originators, right? So it is, it wasn't necessarily the biggest space, the most tested space, because if you look into something like autos or student loans, there's literally billions and billions more of this uh, history and, you know, data to work with. So it was always considered untested. But I think at this point, as we pointed out, I mean, the first deals, even Lending Club was 2010 or even earlier. At this point, it's been around for 13, 14 years, right? You know, people still criticize that, hey, it hasn't really seen a cycle like 2008, a recessionary cycle where consumer credit softens. That may be true. We were actually thinking that, you know, throughout the pandemic, as uh, as you could imagine, um, our theory was that, hey, any kind of prime or near prime uncertain consumer loan borrower, if marketplace lending is indeed the canary in the coal mine, we should see really elevated defaults and delinquencies and things like that. But as we all know, that didn't happen because with all the stimulus payments the borrowers have received from the government, and this especially applies to lower in the credit spectrum, i.e. subprime or near-prime borrowers, they took those payments and actually made payments on their answer to consumer loans. So we've actually seen uh, improvement in delinquencies, improvement in losses in some of the subprime deals throughout the pandemic. My point being is, would the uh, industry participants, would they call it a test? Can we now call it a tested asset class? <laughs> you know, it, the beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. But if something's been around for 15 years and it's been working for 15 years, I don't want to call it untested anymore. I think for better or worse, I, I think we can say marketplace lending has definitely have, uh, come of age and just 
looking into who's investing in what shape or form, I would say it's becoming a more attractive institutional asset class. And I think less people care if it's tested, untested, whether it's a canary or not. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been investing now for 14 years. Since 2009 was when I first started and never had a down year, uh, which I think is uh, something that I can't say from many of my investments. But anyway, I want to talk about 2022. And I'll link to the article that you recently wrote to us in the show notes, because one of the things that surprised me about that was the volume in 2022, particularly across the the eight companies, the eight major issuers, it was significantly higher than the 2021 and significantly higher than any other year. So what's driving this increased demand? 2022 was indeed a record year yeah. um, for marketplace lending. So few things. First of all, the the demand for unsecured consumer loans is not going away, right? So unsecured consumer loan demand is strong. And you, if you look into who's supplying this, you don't really see commercial banks rushing to provide this financing, right? So it's really mostly coming from the, you know, the type of loans, at least we're talking about, is coming from these marketplace lenders. Now, as a matter of fact, this, this gap, i.e. The, the lack of funding for unsecured consumer uh, product will actually probably get worse after what happened to SVB, meaning if there's more bank consolidation, if more smaller banks exit the space, uh, right? If there's more big money, money center banks, we'll probably even see less funding available by banks for the unsecured consumer loan borrowers, right? And also, it was indeed a ton of origination in 2002. I don't want to necessarily call it uh, surprising because if you look into who's done securitization and the type of uh, the product they're securitizing, obviously rates went up in 2022. Inflation was a problem, right? These are the types of things that really reduced issuance for many other sectors except for marketplace lending. But it's important to also look at the impact of rates on marketplace lending, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're a mortgage borrower, uh, if you can borrow at 4% versus that rate going up to 6%, that really makes a big dent on your budget, right? For your monthly P&I, especially on a few hundred thousand dollar mortgage, right? If the rates go up from four to six. But if you look into someone like Opportune or Landmark or even One Main, the APRs, the, the, the interest rates they landed are 30, 25, and 23, respectively, right? So the fact that, you know, the rates are a few percentage points higher doesn't necessarily dampen the origination for some of these really high APR lenders like Opportune Landmark, and I would put Avant in there as well. So the point being, if somebody is looking for a 25% APR loan, Right. And if they cannot get it from a, you know, if they're looking for an unsecured consumer loan and if they cannot get it from any other source, and I don't mean these are lender of last resort by any means, but they will get that loan, whether that's 23% APR or 25% APR or 22% APR. So from that perspective, you know, the rates rallying doesn't stop the origination for this high APR product because there is uh, plenty of excess interest to go around, which you know, because you are securitizing at the cost of funds of, let's say, 8%, right? But the underlying product is spitting out 30% interest, right? So there's a lot of excess interest, a lot of margin for issuer originator to be able to, um, you know, 
economically better off from that securitization, right? So that's one reason we didn't see the securitization volume go down for marketplace lending was the high APRs. If you look into the mortgage world, you know, with the rates going up, nobody refied and origination was down and therefore the securitization was down. So it's really a function of origination being high drives, you know, um, securitization volumes being high. But also it's important to keep in mind, securitization is not the only takeout. Securitization is not the only um, way to monetize these portfolios. There's warehouse lines, there's, uh, you know, selling it outright as a portfolio to a buyer, right? So if we see record securitization volumes for any product, that also means securitization was indeed the best execution for that asset class that year compared to previous year. What that means is there were buyers, institutional buyers. What that means is cost of funds, despite being higher from uh, compared to previous years, was not prohibitive, right? So all of those facts came together to enable issuance and a record year for marketplace lending. And, you know, looking into this year, I think we're seeing similar trends. We're issuing so far this year, you know, we're a Q1, but it's par with last year. Mm-hmm. For a lot of other sectors, mortgages, autos, uh, student loans, you're going to see 20, 30, 40% less issuance compared to the same period last year. So I think this is actually going to be a good year for marketplace lending, marketplace uh, securitizations as well. Right, right. And there's also, I mean, some of the major players have not been in the market like for a while. Like Prosper hasn't been in the market for, I don't know how long, years it feels like. Lending clubs obviously keeping a lot of stuff on their balance sheet. Now they're a bank. These used to be players in the late 2010s that were in market regularly. But but anyway, I want, I want to actually switch to the other end of the market because one thing that's been, I've been really curious about is you talked about SoFi, you know, Marlet's another one. These are prime borrowers. And I'm curious about the senior tranches in those securitizations I mean, they can't be paying very much. And what what about when you compare it to what you can get now with with the government, with treasuries, are the spreads still enough to get people interested in the senior tranches of some of those deals? Yeah, so I think it's important to kind of keep in mind uh, who plays in those senior tranches, right? It's institutional money managers. The AAA investors care about rating and duration. They care less about what's under the hood. So if it's a six-month weighted average life bond, you know, it's going to pay off in a few months, right? So they care a lot less what's under the hood. But what I mean, what I also want to emphasize is that the deals that are coming into market, they have very significant credit enhancement. For example, Bankers Healthcare put out a deal, I think it was their last 2023 deal, the uh, AAA tranche had 50% credit enhancement, right? Can you explain what that means, the 50% credit enhancement? Basically, the securitization is you are you have a portfolio that is uh, producing a cash flows, right? In this case, a marketplace lending portfolio where borrowers are paying principal and interest monthly. All securitization does is it takes those uh, cash flows and structures those cash flows to create tranches. Let's say A tranche, B tranche, and C tranche, right? Mm-hmm. Hundred million dollar book, you can say fifty million A, thirty million B, twenty million C, right? So that's your senior mes and sub. All it does is senior bonds have lower returns and lower risk, shorter lives. They get paid and they get out of the way, right? Mezzanine takes on more risk and requires more return. And obviously these most subordinate bonds like residuals have higher yields. It could be 20, 25% yields and the duration or the weighted average life, i.e. the 
number of years your dollars outstanding and exposed to risk, that is the weighted average life, that could be 10 years for some of these more riskier assets. So it's really uh, securization gives access to different parts of the capital structure uh, on the same portfolio, on the same receivable portfolio to different investors. So going back to your question, you know, who's buying AAAs and why? So the BlackRock's uh, double lines, PIMCOs of the world, are investors in AAA rated assets for marketplace lending portfolios, which you can actually look up from 13F filings. So these are all, you know, short duration AAA funds. Some of them are um, income funds. They're just looking for that short duration. But marketplace lending also offers residual trades and some subordinates where, you know, for especially for the hedge funds who really feel like they know the credit under the securitization and they can they have a edge in calculating expected losses and things like that. Those assets are available yielding at 20, you know, north of 20% in some cases. So your original question, is this still a good investment instead of treasuries? You know, why not buy a two far five-year treasury? There's still a spread. I mean, there's still 50, 150 basis points spread you can earn on a pretty short product, right? I mean, some of the yields we're looking at are, you know, closer to five and a half, six percent, still not the type of uh, yield you can get from treasuries. And these are very short assets. It pays off in six months and it's got, you know, 30, 40% credit enhancement, meaning when the losses hit, you're not going to take the losses. The bonds that are subordinate to you take the uh, losses first. So in the case of our you know, AAA rated bond with 50% credit enhancement, what that means is 50% of all the borrowers in the pool would have to default with 100% loss severity with not a single dollar recovered for your bond to take a loss. So not an impossible scenario, but a very unlikely scenario, right? right? So. Right. That's you know that's what I meant by the credit enhancement available. Yeah, appreciate that. So yeah, I mean, it'd have to be the end of the world almost for that sort of thing to happen. I want to talk about the credit box. Like I've talked to a few lenders. I was just in San Francisco last month. Sat down with many of the many of the leaders in the marketplace lending space, and many of them talked about tightening credit boxes. Are you seeing that in the deals that are that are coming to market this year? Yes, we are seeing tighter underwriting criteria to the extent issuers are relying on FICOs or other credit metrics. They're definitely being tightened. We are seeing the weighted average coupon in these deals, i.e. the APR being charged to the borrower is also going higher. But that is not limited to a marketplace lending space. This is just flight to quality. Every investor in every corner of the uh, market, I think, is doing that. Flight to quality means in this context, at least maybe more near prime or prime deals. Uh, it could also mean, you know, trying to move higher in the capital structure from an investor's perspective, you know, maybe away from the mess to more senior positions. But, you know, this is also creating investment opportunities as well, right? Is there's a flight to higher up in the capital structure. Right, right. So one of the lenders I was talking to last month said that, you know, they, they hadn't been in market for a while and they're thinking about doing it on uh, the latter half of this year, do you expect demand to to increase? You know, in the second half of the year, as more more supply comes on board. I'll give you a bifurcated answer for that. I think for the senior part of the capital structure, the demand will be there, right? As we've talked about, the, those investors tend to be a bit more agnostic 
i.e. They, they may as well be invested in CMBS or RMBS or ABS, AAA, AAA is a AAA, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that demand will be there uh, on, on top of the capital structure, right? But if you look into some of the subordinate investors or you know, the, the borrowers who are retaining the residual. Residual is the equity tranche, the, the, the bottom tranche, i.e. the first loss piece. The first borrower defaults, it comes out of the residual, obviously not even subordinate or mes, right? So it's really what those investors have in mind is really what's going to drive the issuance, right? Because if there's not enough demand for from those investors for the subordinate, i.e. the risky tranches, then the securitization doesn't get done. So then it's just a function of getting compensated for that risk for especially for the subordinate investors and giving them a, you know a bit more protection whether that means you know issuer retaining a bigger uh, residual which means there is less risk for the issued bonds right so it's a little bit of adjusting the deal until you know you find uh, market clearing levels but the one thing that's going for marketplace lending is apr is high enough that you know, you can still do these deals. If you look into some of the latest marketplace lending deals, the senior stack coupons, or, or I should say the yields were six, seven, eight percent, maybe goes up to nine for some deals. Mm. Fine. That's the cost of funds. Let's call it nine percent. Your APR is 25. So there's still 15 percent excess interest to account for any miscalculation and losses or, you know, to compensate issuer, originator, what have you for their effort in putting together the securitization. So as long as there's demand for the subordinate investors, I think deals are going to get done. Now, those subordinate investors, I, you know, if we had this conversation before the SVB situation, I would say that demand will also be there. How did SVB change things? I think there's going to be some distressed portfolios hitting the market. Right. And not from SVB or any failed bank, but, you know, SVB just highlighted the, the amount of distress that's real and that's out there. Right. So when when these types of things happen, usually your alternative investor will take a step back and say, hey, look, do I want to maybe wait for a distress opportunity where I can buy something 60 cents on the dollar and make an immediate, you know, 80 percent return, whatever. Right. Or or do I want to play in some of the you know the newer securitizations like the marketplace lending where you may invest and you know get like 10% 12% return levered up to 15 like if you can get there even right so i guess the point is there's you know the, the same buyers who who invest in marketplace lending also invest in distressed deals and i do think that they may actually be more willing to wait for some kind of distressed deals right now after the, the SVB um, law. The yields are going to get juicy, I think, Peter. That's really right. all I'm saying, right? It's, <laughs> it's like, hey, you want this 8% yield that's got a little bit of credit enhancement, there are unsecured borrowers behind it, but you're not getting it at a real deep discount, or you know, get something at a deep discount from a, from a distressed sale. Yeah, yeah, understood, understood. So anyway, I, I want to move on to prepayments because... We've seen some unusual trends in prepayments. I know that you know, when the, um, all the stimulus was coming out during the, the height of the pandemic, there was lots of prepayments happening. Now that interest rates are going up, I imagine this has dropped off dramatically, right? Yes, prepayments are down. Yeah, they are indeed down dramatically. And I think uh, you know, there's two reasons for that. High interest rates, definitely one reason. I mean, high interest rates takes prepayments down for any product, including marketplace lending. But the other thing is, and this is not always easy to track, but with the 
credit box getting tighter, your ability to refinance with, a, with another lender is decreased. And that's why you're also seeing uh, prepayments go down as well. So not only the rates are higher, but the credit box is tighter. So you're not able to necessarily refi with another borrower. So that's what we're seeing now. What we saw throughout the pandemic was actually also very interesting. If you look into either prepays or, or things like annualized net losses, there's actually a theme, there's a trend between different platforms, right? You have SoFi, who, as you know, lends to Henry's, right? High earners, not rich yet. Well, that was at least how they started I mean, 10 years ago. I'm sure they're rich mm-hmm. now, but so <laughs> they are lending to prime borrowers and their default rates are, you know, general cumulative net loss rates are 2%, around 2%, sub 2%. Throughout the pandemic and way before the pandemic, it's always been there. It's not like the SoFi uh, losses improved in uh, in the pandemic because the borrowers got uh, stimulus checks, right? Because these are not the borrowers that actually need or use those, uh, have a need for stimulus checks. But if you look into the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, you have Upstart, for example, with net losses were around maybe 10%, 8 10% before the pandemic. We've seen, to your point, prepayments or paying down um, loans We've seen the, uh, the default rates on those almost converge with SoFi. So your, your prime and subprime borrowers from a credit perspective were performing pretty similar in like late 2021. And that was just a function of the subprime borrowers getting stimulus checks from the government and being under lockdown, not able to travel, not able to do anything. They literally just paid down those loans, not just marketplace lending loans, same applies to uh, mortgages as well. So, but that was a short lived trend because uh, I would say like maybe late 2021 when the stimulus payments uh, disappeared. And by the way, keep in mind, this is before Ukraine, before any kind of deep recession talks or anything like that. We've actually seen the annualized net loss rates on marketplace lending go up back then in, in late 2021. And I think this is, again, just a function of no more stimulus checks back to real life. Right. And and the other thing is throughout the pandemic, when all those subprime borrowers were making timely payments with the stimulus payments, that also led to FICO inflation. Not that marketplace lenders always rely on FICO. I mean, they all have their underwriting models that doesn't necessarily rely on FICO, but it's something to consider. I would say many subprime borrowers in the pandemic actually became near prime, right, just by paying down loans. But that's artificial, right? That, you know, you're just one payment, one missed payment away from being subprime borrower, right? So I think that's that FICO inflation and what happened in the pandemic and what it meant for credit quality and credit performance really needs to be studied before, you know, jumping into conclusions by by looking at, uh, you know, data. Right, right. Yeah, got it. Okay, so we're running out of time. I want to get to one more question. And when you're looking at all these deals and you sort of look out through the rest of this year into 2024, I'm curious about what you think of the unsecured consumer lending asset class. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, talk about a recession. We don't know where interest rates are going to end up. But I'd love to kind of at least get your perspective as how you think about it. How will the marketplace lending industry perform over the rest of this year and into 2024? I expect a performance similar to last year, which was a good amount of issuance. Yes, some deterioration in credit performance, 
right? And we've seen that last year. I think we're going to see further deterioration of credit performance, especially for subprime. But, you know, keep in mind that this is all priced in. This is all in the APR. This is all in the structure. And I think the the sector used the last uh, 10, 15 years to iron out all these issues so that it becomes a viable investment, right? So I, I do think we're going to see healthy issuance the distress or credit deterioration to a certain extent will continue. Sponsorship will matter a lot. Repeat issuers, uh, bigger names, names that have been around are going to do better. And I, I do think there's going to be some consolidation from some of the smaller and weaker uh, peers, uh, you know, joining their uh, larger peers. But the demand is there. As long as the demand from the consumers is there, the market will do, the. I think the sector will do fine. And I don't see anyone other than marketplace lenders rushing to, you know, lend to these borrowers, right? right. And I, you know, I don't want to call out any names, but it's not an easy space to operate. There's mm-hmm. been some recent exits from the space, yes. some highly publicized names. I mean, just, you know, being big and bad doesn't make you successful in the space. You have to be nimble and kind of creative. And I think that's what the industry is doing. Um, exactly that. Right. Well, that's a good place to end it on, Ganesh. I, I appreciate your insights today. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Please go ahead and give the show a review on the podcast platform of your choice and go tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.